When Claire and I got engaged way back in 1995 and then married in 1996, we discovered that you have to choose which china that you're going to collect. Ryan recently confided in me that he was really, really excited about the thought of choosing which china he and Indy were going to collect. Apparently, as Ryan recently discovered, you have to have one really posh set for best and then an everyday use china as well. So when we got engaged, when Claire and I got engaged, we went off to the china department of the department store where my mum worked at the time. And we both had a look around and we both agreed on one design, one brand that we really, really liked. And this was it. This is one of the plates. It's uh, by Royal Dalton and the particular uh, type is called Biltmore. And this is it. Look, you can see it's really posh, isn't it? So we put this on our wedding list and some of our friends and family were really generous and bought us some plates and some cups and some, some bowls and saucers and so on. The problem is that every single one of these plates, so just one of these plates, costs in excess of £30. And that was 25 years ago. So we could never afford to buy any more plates. We could never justify buying any more plates, even if we had the cash to do it. Not at that price anyway. So we've only just got enough plates and bowls to use if I think if we have six people around for dinner and that's it. It's pretty much only ever used at Christmas and then maybe once or twice the rest of the year. It's probably the poshest, the most expensive item of its kind in our house. It even has a little bit of gold on it. This is gold leaf that goes around the outside here. Really, really uh, kind of top stuff. Fantastic. It looks lovely, doesn't it? I'm sure you all agree. But it's always just been way too expensive for us to buy any more items. So it was a lovely idea, but kind of a pointless thing to buy, to be honest. So my advice to anybody getting married, Ryan and Indy especially, is choose a China range that you can actually afford to add to. And choose one that if you break a plate, you're not going to feel horrendous because you've, you've just broken that thing that Auntie Bessie spent £100 on. Now, at the opposite end of the spectrum, we've got this... Uh, plastic container here and this is a nice little one from Poundland and it's it's the one that we keep by the back door it's broken as you can see and it's where we put our uh, recycling in ready before it goes out to the big recycling bin around the side of the house and we've got two extremes in our house we've got a posh china with gold leaf on the one hand and we've got this broken plastic box at the other end of the spectrum for rubbish basically and in our passage that we're looking at today Paul talks about exactly the same kind of thing as he writes and instructs Timothy about leading a church Paul uses the picture of a big grand house that on the one hand has bowls and plates made from gold and silver and then on the other hand has uh, items in it made from just clay and wood and just the kind of equivalent of plastic I guess then the gold and silver items are for special occasions and are highly prized Whereas the clay and the wooden items are just for kind of everyday household tasks, really lowly tasks, in fact. So what on earth is Paul on about as he uses this picture of, uh, of this big house with these different kinds of items in it? What is he trying to illustrate? What's he trying to teach us as he writes to Timothy? Well, Paul was writing to Timothy from his prison cell in Rome. And he was instructing him how to lead a church. And as we read that today, we're meant to then learn ourselves how to lead and, and uh, run a church. And in the section we're looking at today, Paul was instructing Timothy on how to deal with three things, three problems that often occur in church life. Firstly, how to deal with people who are teaching things that are wrong. And we saw a little bit of that last week, didn't we? Secondly, how to deal with people 
that oppose the church leader, the church elders? How do you deal with that? And thirdly, how to deal with people who just seem to spend all their time arguing and quarrelling just for the fun of it? Last week, we looked at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, where Paul highlighted two men that have been leading other people astray from the truth of the Bible. And today we're going to continue that uh, on from that section in 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 to 26, where Paul continues and he develops this theme. So let's read from 2 Timothy 2. We're going to start actually where we uh, began last week in verse 14. And we're going to read right through into this week's passage as well. That'll give us a bit of a context and a bit of setting for what Paul's talking about. So let me just read it to you. The verses should be up on the screen there for you as well. Paul says this uh, from verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who've wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And then this is today's passage as we continue. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So last week we looked at verses 14 to 19 of this passage and we saw how how Paul wrote to Timothy about two men who had been teaching wrong things, Hymenaeus and this guy Philetus. And Paul challenge Timothy to be the opposite to them, the opposite of them, and to make sure he did he taught the right things, to make sure that he, he correctly handled the Bible. This is what he said. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And he's referring there to the Bible. And Paul continues with that theme in these next few verses that we've read today. And as he does so, he begins with this illustration, this picture of a big grand house and some of its contents to make his point. Paul talks about big, important houses that have on the one hand bowls and plates that are made from gold and silver. They're highly prized and they're used for special occasions, a bit like my uh, our Royal Dalton. And on the other hand, this house, this big grand house has bowls and plates and kitchen utensils that are made from wood and clay. And they're used for very menial purposes. They're used for things like uh, putting the the ash out or the rubbish out and waste food and that kind of thing. Whereas the gold and the silver items are highly prized and really honoured 
and they get used for the top occasions and for the best things. Paul says in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, some for ignoble. Some are for noble purposes. They're highly valued and they're honoured and some are for ignoble purposes. They're the complete opposite. And in Paul's illustration, this grand house is a picture or an illustration of a local church. And Paul uses two extremes to then make his point uh, to Timothy and to us. The gold and the silver items represent Christians who handle the Bible correctly and they apply it to their lives, especially people like Timothy, as he'd been challenged to do in those earlier verses that we read. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the wood and the clay items represent and speak to us about those who distort the Bible and teach the wrong things and lead people astray, men like Hymenaeus and Philetus. And so Paul then says, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, in other words, those uh, menial uh, utensils that are in the house, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. In other words, he's saying, cleanse yourself from those people and from their actions, Hymenaeus and Philetus and, and, and their kind of people have nothing to do with those who distort what the Bible says and, and, and teach wrong things and lead people astray. And if you do that, Paul is saying to Timothy, then you will be like the gold and silver bowls in the large house. You will be a faithful Bible teacher who handles the Bible correctly by cleansing yourself or by having nothing to do with these false Bible teachers and their teachings and their behavior, you will be making yourself holy. And being made holy is about separating ourselves from sin on the one hand and, and, and separating ourselves and devoting ourselves to God and to all that's good and right on the other hand. And in the context here, it's about separating ourselves specifically from sinful Bible teachers and from the sinful things they were teaching and doing. And if Timothy does that, Paul is saying, and if we do that, then we will be useful to the master of the house. And of course, in this picture that Paul is, is describing in this illustration, the master of the house is, of course, God. So in other words, we'll be useful to God and we will be ready and able to serve him in any kind of good work that he calls us to. So Paul is saying this and write this on your outline. If you've got an outline that you've printed off this morning, Paul is saying this. We need to cleanse ourselves from false teachers, from their teachings and the behavior that their teachings produce. If you are reading books by Christian authors or you're listening to podcasts or watching Christian TV shows, there's a question that we should be asking ourselves all the time. Are those Bible teachers correctly handling the word of truth? Are they doing what Paul calls Timothy and us to do, which is correctly handle the Bible and correctly teach from it? If they're not, then we should have nothing to do with them or with their teachings or with the behavior that their teachings might produce. It's also true that if a person has been led astray and has been teaching the wrong things or has been influenced by these false Bible teachers, then they too, of course, can at any time make that choice to cleanse themselves and set themselves apart from their sinful actions and devote themselves to God. It's never too late to do that. And I think because of what Paul says in the next verse, and we'll look at that in a moment, that Paul probably intends for us to apply these verses on a wider basis than just uh, false Bible teachers. It's not just about cleansing ourselves from false Bible teachers and false teaching. It is about that primarily, but it's also about cleansing ourselves from all sin. 
We all need to make that daily choice. If we're professing to be followers of Jesus, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if that's us, we need to make that daily choice to turn away from all sin, whatever form it comes in, and instead devote ourselves to living for God and serving him. It's good to ask ourselves the question, have I cleansed myself and set myself apart for God's service? Have I cleansed myself? Have I set myself apart for God's service? Am I devoted to living for him? And that's something that we can do at any time. In fact, it's something that we will need to do on a daily basis. It's not just a kind of once for all thing that we do in the past at some point. That's something that as followers of Jesus, we need to do every day as we commit to living for him day by day, to turn away from sin and live instead for God on a day by day basis. A part of the choice of that daily choice to cleanse ourselves and set up ourselves apart solely for God involves turning away from sinful behavior in general. Not only was the false teaching of these two men at Ephesus sinful in itself, as we saw last week, their teaching then encouraged people to live as they wanted and to indulge in all kinds of sin. And as Paul writes to Timothy, he wants to make sure that Timothy and and then the people that Timothy was leading in the churches in Ephesus didn't fall for this lie or fall into similar behavior themselves or Uh, behave in a similar way as these people were teaching. So Paul says in verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's probably fair to say that there are some sins that are a greater problem for those who are younger and especially for younger men. And of course, Timothy was still a younger man. Sexual sin, pride, arrogance, selfish ambition, being headstrong. These are things that younger people particularly struggle with and especially younger men. The New English Bible translates this verse as follows, as the wayward impulses of youth. And Paul was uh, calling Timothy as a younger man to flee from these kind of things that perhaps particularly are an issue for younger people and younger men in particular. In other words, Paul's saying, look, run away from these things. Do everything you can to go the opposite direction. Take extreme action uh, against them and, and, and defend yourself against them. Timothy no doubt had particular sins that he struggled with due to his age, due to his sex, his personality and his situation. And the same will be true for each one of us this morning. The point is, it doesn't matter which evil desires we find ourselves tempted by, Whatever they are, and we'll always, each one of us will have our own particular kind of things that we struggle with. Whatever they are, we all need to flee from them. The stuff that you struggle with this morning won't be the same things that I struggle with. It might be similar, but there'll be different things for you and different things for me. But whatever sins we struggle with, Paul is calling us, and the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul, through the Word of God today, calling us to take extreme action against sin and, and, and run away from it. And at the same time as we run away from sin, this verse instructs us to run towards godly things, to run towards God himself and the kind of behavior that God wants us to exhibit. Things like righteousness and faith and love and peace. But just as we struggle with some sins, so conversely, we also sometimes struggle with some godly behaviors. We struggle to put them into practice, uh, some more than others. So here's a question for you this morning to think through and, and just kind of reflect on a little bit. What evil desires do you need to flee from? 
That'll be a different issue for, for you than it will be for me. It'll be different to the person sitting next to you. Each one of us will have our own particular issues. But what evil desires do you need to flee from? And conversely, what godly behaviours do you need to run towards? There'll be things that you need to pursue more than others because of your personality, your age, your experience, your situation, and so on. And here's a second question for you in the light of the first question. What specific action or actions do you need to take to run away from sin and run towards God? What specific steps do you need to take? What will that look like for you? It'll look different for you than it will for me. But what will that look like for you today? Are there some specific situations right now in your life that you need to take action over and run away from a particular uh, set of evil desires and run towards godly behavior? Paul then adds a little comment, which is really important. He says to do this along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, we need to surround ourselves with like minded Christians who will help us as we seek to pursue that godly lifestyle. It's good to ask ourselves whether those that we spend time with are a help or a hindrance to us as we seek to follow Jesus day by day. Paul then continues by saying to Timothy, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. There are some people who just love to argue. They just can't help themselves. They, the, the moment they walk into a room, they start an argument or they try to provoke people by what they say. Some people just love an argument about anything. Other people specifically like to argue about things in the Bible if they're Christians. But as we saw last week, they are, they're often not really interested in actually learning what the Bible really teaches and then applying it to their lives. They, they just like to argue for the sake of an argument about a particular verse in the Bible. For some people, quarrelling and arguing is just a way of life, whether it's about the Bible or whether it's about anything in life. They just can't help themselves and they just like to argue for the sake of arguing. They just seem to get a kick out of it and it seems to kind of amuse them and, in, and, and they enjoy it. Some people just love to be controversial or, or, or just wind people up for fun, even though it can be deeply unpleasant for everybody else around them. I think the only person really enjoying that kind of thing is the person doing it. And usually the things that they argue about are what Paul calls here foolish and stupid. Arguing and quarrelling isn't really compatible with the pursuit of righteousness, faith, love and peace that Paul's told uh, Timothy to to run after uh, arguing and quarreling are certainly not going to help Christians stay united believers in Jesus shouldn't be those who argue and quarrel it's not godly behavior and Christian leaders like Timothy should definitely not behave like this but why is arguing and quarreling such a big deal why is it actually a really dangerous thing well let's look briefly at a few other bible verses on the subject which pretty much speak for themselves Proverbs uh, is a fantastic book full of wisdom from God. And Proverbs 15 verse 8 says this, A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Arguing and quarrelling causes conflict. Proverbs 17 verse 4 says, Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Arguing and quarrelling causes disputes that wreck relationships which can then be really difficult to repair just like a dam that's been breached you can't put the water back 
Proverbs 20 verse 3 says, it is to one's honour to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Walking away from an argument is the honourable thing to do. Quarrelling is what fools do. Proverbs 17 verse 19 says this, which is really sobering, by the way. Whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. That's a really serious statement. So what's the logic behind that statement? Well, it's sometimes the case that the person who likes to argue with others is hiding uh, a deeper shame at hidden, unconfessed sin in their own life. It's sometimes the case that the person who likes to argue is struggling with the sin of pride and ego. They have to be right and impose their views on everybody else. Sometimes it's the case that the person just enjoys being obnoxious and gets a kick out of it, which is sinful in itself. Arguing and quarrelling cause disunity and they cause a breakdown in relationships instead of bringing about unity and a deepening of relationships. So we mustn't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they cause division, as Paul says in his letter to Titus. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. So whenever someone starts an argument in whatever situation we find ourselves in, but especially within the context of our church family, which is what Paul is specifically here talking about, then we need to walk away, walk away from foolish and stupid arguments because they cause division and harm relationships in our church family. We need to walk away when those arguments start. It's good to stop and ask ourselves this question. Does my behaviour create unity or does it cause division in my church family? Does my behaviour create unity or does it cause division in my church family? Before I open my mouth and speak, I need to ask myself what I, whether what I'm about to say, will it create unity or will it cause division? There are, however, some occasions when we do have to take a stand uh, on something and we do have to disagree with people openly. And especially if somebody is promoting sin or is distorting the Bible. And if we're in a leadership position in a church, then we will sometimes have to take a stand against others, even if that's really awkward and, and, and unpleasant, which it usually is. And so Paul says in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone able to teach, not resentful. If and when we do have to disagree with someone and take a stand against another person in our church family, then we mustn't do it in an argumentative or an aggressive or overbearing way. And this is especially true of church leaders that need to challenge someone's behaviour or, or someone's actions or, or what they say or are teaching. Speaking as one of the elders here at Regent, I know how difficult this is to do, to have to challenge someone when they're doing or uh, something wrong or when they're behaving badly. That is something I really don't enjoy doing. I hate having to do that. Actually, if you're a church leader that in, or a church elder that enjoys an argument or quarrel, then you shouldn't be a church elder. You shouldn't be a church leader. I personally find it really challenging to teach people in a kind and gentle way when they're actively opposing and denying what the Bible teaches. It's a difficult thing to do. And it's also really challenging for a church leader not to then be resentful towards those who behave badly 
or make the church leader's life difficult. Church leaders can often have lots of wounds inflicted on them by others, especially when you're on the end of attacks, personal attacks aimed at you as a person. That's difficult to not become resentful. But of course, the Bible teaches us we need to forgive one another. So Paul says here that we that the, that the church leader mustn't be resentful. That's what the Bible teaches us. And, and, and those of us who are elders in our church or for that matter, are in any kind of leadership position in a church where we're overseeing a particular ministry or where others look to us. We have to strive to behave this kind of way with God's help. It's really difficult to do. It doesn't come natural to us. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can do this. It can be really tempting to argue back or to become aggressive or to try and get our own way to be domineering and controlling. But that's not how a Christian leader should behave. Instead, as Paul says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. When Paul talks about people opposing a church leader here, he's specifically talking about people opposing them as they teach the truth of the Bible. This does not mean that church leaders should never be opposed or challenged. That is not what Paul is saying. If a church leader is teaching something that's wrong or is doing something wrong or is sinning or behaving badly, then they should definitely be opposed. They should definitely be challenged and rebuked. And there's quite a bit of Bible teaching around that and how we're to, be, uh, to go about doing that. What Paul is talking about here is when someone is wrongly opposing a church leader. And when they're wrongly opposing what the church leader is correctly teaching from the Bible. And when that happens, the church leader, the elder, if at all possible, needs to gently instruct and teach the person in the hope that God might be merciful to them and allow that person to repent. The aim is to help steer the person away from sin and bad behaviour and wrong teaching and wrong doctrine and to help them then engage with the truth of the Bible. And the hope is that in doing that, that the person will then come to their senses. The, the Greek word here is used to describe someone in Greek literature, uh, Greek literature who has been drunk and then comes out of their uh, kind of drunken behaviour and comes to their senses. They're sobered up and they're now thinking straight. Because here's the, the really serious bit. When a person is behaving like this, Paul says that they're in the trap of the devil and that he's taken them captive to do his will. That's really serious stuff, isn't it? That's, that's really serious language that Paul is using. Satan is called the deceiver in the Bible. It's what he does. He deceives people, even Christians, and he traps them and he uses them for his schemes. And the trouble with being deceived is that, you're, is that when you are deceived, then you don't realise it. That's the very nature of deception. Satan is always out to cause trouble in churches. Why? Because the local church is the hope of the world. And Satan wants to wreck churches by causing division and disunity. Paul says these words in 2 Corinthians about the need to forgive each other. He says in all we should forgive in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan is always scheming to destroy local churches. Satan will do whatever he can to wreck local churches like this one here at Region. And it's sadly the case that people will sometimes fall for Satan's lies. And they'll be trapped by the devil and they'll end up doing his will. They'll end up doing his work with him, his work for him without even realising it. 
The antidote to that, according to Paul here, is for church elders to faithfully teach the Bible verse by verse, in season and out of season, and when necessary, to try to gently instruct face to face those who oppose them, hoping and praying that the person opposing them will come to their senses and turn back to God. Paul wrote these things to Timothy because he knew the challenges that Timothy was facing and would face in the future as a church leader. And nothing has changed in church leadership 2000 years later. Satan will use all sorts of schemes to damage local churches, whether it's false teachers and false teaching, whether it's evil desires that lead to sinful behavior or whether it's people that cause disunity. Why does Satan target churches? and Why is it so important that we take on board what Paul is saying in this passage? Because the local church is the primary means by which people will hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Satan definitely doesn't want that to happen. The local church is the primary means by which God is glorified here on earth today. And Satan doesn't want that happening either. So with that in mind, let's just reflect this morning on this passage and on what God is saying to us through it. And let's try and apply the lessons that we've looked at today to our lives so that we might bring God glory, especially here at Regent in this church, that we might stay united together and bring God glory together. I'm going to pray now with that focus and with that in mind as I bring this message to a close. Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for this passage that we've read this morning and studied and looked at together. May we apply the lessons that we have learnt from it to our lives this morning. Help us, we pray, to be people of unity, help us to value the truth of the Bible, help us to be those who correctly handle your word. Help us to flee and run away from evil desires. Help us to pursue righteous living, godly living. Help us to be these kind of people, we pray. Help us to be those who uh, submit to those who are in uh, eldership in church. Help those of us who are elders to be humble and to submit to uh, our church family and help us, we pray, to be united together and to work together for your glory, we pray, that the good news of Jesus might be spread across this area and across this world and that you might be glorified here and in us and through us here at Regent. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.